1: I jump out of bed because I love my life, living on my terms. I know that I will thrive. Being myself, clarity will pride. So I stand out and be J U I C Y. Stand out and be J U I C Y.
0: Hello, welcome back to the GFR show. This is the first episode of 2022. I am so excited to be back. I handpicked today's guest because I wanted to start the year with a bang. When I heard her share her story on a event that we both were speaking on, I just, I mean, it was like, oh my God, I have to have her on the freaking show. So this is the divine right time for her appearance. And her name is Miss Rhonda Britton. And this question, she inspired this question. So here it goes what was the worst day of your life? Does a day just pop into your head? Do you immediately know the answer to that? Maybe you have multiple options to choose from, or maybe you don't even resonate with that characterization of a time in your life. Well, Rhonda shares right off the bat in the beginning of the interview and a lot of detail around the worst day of her life. And Following the fallout of that worst day, she became an alcoholic, she had three DUIs, she tried to commit suicide three times, and not until the age of 27 um, did she really begin to embrace that she was supposed to be alive and to figure out how to do it, <laughs> how how to do it in a way that she could be so less, far less tormented by The story that she tells at the beginning of the show. She also is beautifully transparent and authentic and shares with us another significant dark night of the soul. We call them GFR wormholes around here that really contributed to the next piece of her evolution. And then, even most recently, what she's been going through in the last six, eight months. And I just have so much respect for someone who has built their life based on a trauma and continues to inquire and continues to evolve. And I just so appreciated that about about her. She's an Emmy award winner. She's had multiple reality TV series. The one I remember her from is called Starting Over. She's actually done over 600 episodes of reality television. She's been on Oprah multiple times. She's known as America's Favorite Life Coach because of the coaching that she's done on TV. And you know what? She brings the neuroscience of fear down to earth, giving people a path out of the not being good enough trap. And I have just loved seeing how her fearless living, which is the her original book, Fearless Living, how that work has evolved and served over the years. We happen to be in the same a part of the world. She's in Los Angeles, I'm um, south in Orange County, south of LA in Orange County. And it's kind of a small entrepreneur world here, particularly those of us that have been doing this for well over 20 years, like she has. So we kind of <laughs> spent a lot of time going, Did you go here? Did I speak? Did I see you speak here? Did you see me speak here? And it was kind of a bit of a reunion. And I just adored her. She's a pro, she really knows how to tell a freaking story. And it's her life, and it's quite phenomenal how she came onto the scene starting with this experience that happened when she was 14 years old. I cannot wait for you to hang out with her. You are going to see why I just adore her, and you're going to have some of your own personal ahas around how fear shows up in your life and what it's stopping you from. Without further ado, Ms. Rhonda Britton.
1: It's Rhonda Britton. Welcome (laughs) to the GFR show. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm so grateful to be here, Lisa. I've just watched you over the years and it's such a joy to be a guest. Thank you. You know, I I feel like we've both been watching each other from
0: afar over the years. (laughs) Here in this L.A., Orange County, San Diego entrepreneur. Southern California entrepreneurs. (laughs) Yes. We got a culture. We got a culture and a history here. It's a very rich history. (laughs) I've known Rhonda for many years, but I somehow missed her very impactful story. And I heard really a thumbnail of it recently on a conference that we were both speaking at. And I was like, I have to get her the fuck on my show because it is so mind-blowingly powerful. And then, of course, you know, what we're about here is like, then what happened? Like, you know, what was the divine design, you know, of that struggle? So, that's why I had to have you on the show. And of course okay. you're a pro. So this is going to be a great, lively conversation. Y'all you already told me I should interrupt her. So yeah, when I do, stop. I have permission.
1: <laughs> Otherwise I will talk straight for 45 minutes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, good thing we're on video. So I could just go like
1: that. Yeah, just ear. be like, Rhonda, slow it down, girl. <laughs> I just put
0: up the, you know, timeout sign. That's y'all. right. That's right. Yeah. I do it to my yeah. clients too. I I'm just like, like, all just, right. ah. Uh,
1: <laughs> And I'll be like, "Oh, I better wrap this up." Okay,
0: (laughs) where now? Where are you originally from? Where are you from? I
1: I always say I was born in Minnesota, grew up physically in Michigan, and emotionally uh, became an adult uh, in Los Angeles. Ironically, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. But grew up in Minnesota, so I do have the Minnesota nice thing. Yes, uh, and then my uh, so I love being from Minnesota. I love well, that. I, I lived like, there for
0: two years. So uh, I could connect with you a little bit on that.
1: Yeah, so Minnesota nice is I love that. And then um, my parents and my relatives and everybody is from Upper Michigan, upper, the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, where it's, you know, like in the winter, it's like 15 below. So I grew up with 365 inches of snow a year. So, you know, when people say it's cold, I'm like, oh, you don't know cold. You don't know cold, right? (laughs) Oh, it's snowed. You don't know snow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I grew up in Jersey, so I know a little bit of snow and I, and I know the opposite of the Minnesota night. So it was really interesting when I, (laughs) right after I got married about 23, my husband and I moved to Minnesota for a couple of years and I was like, Okay, why are we on? Why are we at the movies and there's two lines and everybody's in one line and there's obviously somebody there at the other window? And it's like, nope. They're so freaking nice here that they can't even get out of line to go to the obviously open. It was just for my Jersey brain, I just could not compute. It didn't make any sense.
1: So I went back home recently and the bridge, there was, there's a, we have to cross this little tiny bridge, right? And the bridge was down, you know, it was having troubles. They were fixing it. And so there's two lanes going on to the bridge. Okay. And I'm not joking. Probably two miles away from the bridge. People (laughs) started getting into one line.
0: Oh my gosh. And I'm like this.
1: "Mm, What? Yeah. But, but that's it. It's like, well, we all know the bridge is closed. We all know the bridge is having problems. So you can't skip, you know, you can't skip over. So yeah, that, that's where I'm from. Yes. And I think we're going to weave that Minnesota nice thing into, into <laughs> we're going
0: we're to, that's going to be more illuminated as you tell your story and how that's impacted you. Yeah, thank you. So, so let's go right there because it is such a, it, it's just so, such a profound beginning to your journey for who you are now and how you've been serving the world for many years. So let's just, let's just go
1: there, girl. And I'll just and I always, you know, it's just like the worst day of my life, right? We all have a worst day. We always have to have the horrific Rick, Rick day. We your your day is
0: like the worst day of like millions of like of if you surveyed a million people, it could be among the top of the worst day.
1: Well, you know, it's so funny because I I obviously have definitely had a lot of people tell me that, and I always go, you know, but it's all relative. You know, it's all yeah, relative. that's true. So you know, yeah. I never think my story is more horrific than anybody else's story. So. I just think it's my story, right? And and everybody has their own story. And mine my started per se, like the horrific day was when I was 14 years old. And my parents were in the middle of getting divorced. They're they separated. And so it was Father's Day. And my father was coming to take us out to Sunday brunch. And I don't know how you grew up, Alisa, but I grew up, there's three girls. I'm the middle three girls. My parents, It's five people. You didn't go out to eat. I mean, once in a while, maybe you'd get a pizza in, but you don't go to brunch. That's expensive. Yes. Only where um, kids eat free. That's where we would Yeah. Yeah. Though. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. Because it's, it's like, and you go to brunch, it's like, that's wasting food. So it was a big deal that my father was taking us, us, us out to brunch, you know, trying to, trying to win my mother back, I'm sure. And so uh, my mother made me a brand new dress.
0: White. Mm,
1: wow. Um, you know, and uh so I'm in my mom's bedroom. She's putting on her, you know, pink lipstick, she's putting on her blue eyeshadow, putting, you know, fluffing up her beehive hairdo. My dad walks in and he goes, Come on, come on, because that's what dads do. My two sisters are fighting it out in our one bathroom. Our house was about 850 square feet. My mother says, You know, let's go. So me and my mother start walking out with my dad. My two sisters are still in the bathroom fighting it out. And as we walk outside, it starts sprinkling. So my dad says he has to get his coat. From the car. And this coat was a tan nagahide leisure suit coat. So it was a like a, you know, it was like a fancy coat, right? And uh, you know, so he had like his seersucker pants on and his plaid shirt and his suede coat. They got and the so, picture. <laughs> yeah, I totally, right? And so my father opens up his trunk to grab his coat, and I notice out of the corner of my eye that he doesn't grab a coat, but he grabs a gun and he starts screaming at my mother. You made me do this. You made me do this. And he fires and I yell out, dad, what are you doing? Dad, what are you doing? Stop. And he cocks the gun again and points it at me. And I absolutely think I'm next. He looks at me. I look at him. He blinks. I blink. He looks at me. I blink. He blinks. And I, it felt like an hour. I'm sure it was, you know, 10 seconds, but my mother still alive looks up and see that gun in my face and screams out, no, don't. And my father, realizing my mother's still alive, takes that bullet intended for me and shoots my mother a second time. And the second bullet goes through my mother's abdomen, out her back, lands in the car horn. And for the next 20 minutes, all I hear is, "Eh." and then my father cocks the gun again, drops to his knees, puts the gun to his head and fires. And so in a matter of less than two minutes, I was the sole witness of watching my father murder my mother and commit suicide. Now, I don't know how other people would respond, but this is how I responded. I blame myself because I did nothing heroic. I didn't, uh, you know, jump in front of my mother. I didn't grab the gun. You know, I didn't kick my father in the shins. I did nothing heroic. And so I... Really believed at that moment that I basically split in two, and I think this is common for so many people, right? So on the outside, I pretended everything was fine. I was fine, I'm fine, fine, I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And inside, you don't get to be happy ever again when you watch your mother dying. You do nothing. Happiness is off the table. Like you, you can never be happy again. And I had so much guilt and shame about my lack of being able to to affect change that day. Right? I could not. I did nothing but yell, "Stop, Dad! Stop!" That I eventually, as I, you know, in in high school, I was still living. We still lived in that house for the next two years. As I went to college, I discovered alcohol and uh, started drinking. It's amazing when you don't want to remember the past. How drinking just takes that away when you black out all the time. So I started drinking. I got three DUIs. I tried to kill myself three times, and it was that third suicide attempt. Lisa, that I realize I'm not very good at killing myself, not skilled at it, not good. And I got to figure out another way. Now, I, I want to say one thing is that during those, you know, 20 years from the time my mother died to me truly changing my life in, in a very extraordinary way, during those 20 years, I was going to therapy. I was reading books. I was going to workshops. I did shaman, energy, inner child, you name it, I did it. Whatever was available. I was doing it. I was trying with every fiber of my being to get past my past. And it would not, no matter what I did, I was building my toolbox, which is great. And I had a lot more understanding again, which is great, but it never, none of that took away the feeling that there was something wrong with me, right? It never took away the feeling that I wasn't good enough. There's, It never took away the feeling that I'm damaged, right? So when I committed suicide the th- third time, when I attempted suicide the third time, they do, you know, put you in a psychiatric ward and to see if you're- How old were you? How old were you? Oh gosh. The third time? I think, let's see, how old was I? 27 or 20, 27, maybe. And by the way, those, those years between 14 and 27 is, um, I had a nightmare every night that my father was killing me. So every night I would dream that my father was shooting at me and, and I would wake up some mornings, Literally, I remember. I, I remember so vividly, lying in bed and trying to figure out how I was going to get out of bed because I felt like I had so many bullet holes in me. It's like I I had nothing. There was like I was Swiss cheese. Like I I had not enough body to even get out of bed. And when I did that third suicide attempt, and they put you in the psychiatric ward, they deemed me not crazy. They sent me home, and that is when I realized um, if I'm not meant to die. I've got to figure out how to live. And and again, remember all those years I was doing everything. I mean, mean, there was nobody working harder on her personal development and healing herself than I was. But I remember sitting in my, when they sent me home from the psych ward and I sat in my little tiny studio apartment realizing I was never gonna, I wasn't gonna die. I was meant to live. I surrendered to like, I'm supposed to live. I really do have to change my life because it is not, I can't keep living like this. I, I just can't keep living like this. So that day I'm in, I'm at home say to myself, well, I have to start over. And I said to myself, well, what do they do in kindergarten? And I said, well, they give you gold stars when you do something good. So I went to the store, got a calendar and gold stars. And for the next 30 days, anytime I did something good at all, like little, like I'm not, I'm talking, I still have the calendar, by the way, it's in my office. And it's like, when you read what I wrote next to the gold stars, it would be like, got angry and didn't break anything. Like that's where we're talking right here. Like that's the level we're talking, right? Were you living
0: alone at the time?
1: I was living alone at the time, which is not a good thing, right? Not a good thing. Hmm. Um, So I was doing my calendar. Literally, it would be like, had a drink and didn't get drunk, you know, or got upset, but didn't yell. I mean, that's where I was. Like, that's amazing. And after the end of 30 days, Lisa, I remember my calendar was full of gold stars, and it was the first moment I felt hope. The First moment that I was like, okay, okay, there's hope. I am worth saving is really how I felt. I am worth saving now.
0: And were you just in your own space, meaning you that was, it sounds like the idea was divinely inspired. It didn't come from a therapist or coach or anybody you're working with. And it sounds like for those 30 days, you weren't really relying on any of the myriad of people that you've probably been relying on for so many years. Like it was one of the first times or where that you really just was like, all right, this is like my show. Like I'm supposed to live. I'm going to figure this out. Yep. And this is what I'm doing for the next 30 days without, yep. without a lot of
1: external there was zero influences external. or advice. There you know. was, ex- it was zero external. Do you think that was a key piece of the puzzle? I think for me, it was, fo- it was listening to myself, right? Self-reliance. So, and- right. I, I had, so after my parents died, me and my sisters lived in that house for the next two years. And then I got my own apartment at 16 Wow! and my little sister got her own apartment at 16. And oh my gosh, I mean, nobody, like when my parents died, nobody came over. Nobody helped us. No, nobody came. No relative came. Oh my God. No family came. I mean, nobody came. I mean, this is how this is. I, I was talking to my uncle a few years ago in his, you know, having a chat with him when I was up in Michigan and, and he looks at me and he goes, you know, Rhonda, where were you girls after that happened? Anyway, like, where'd you guys go? I said, Uncle, we were in the house. He goes, "Well, I drove by once." I mean, that's the level of. Oh my gosh! So when I talk about self-reliance, that's all I had. And so when I would go to therapy, or when I would go to go and read a book, or go to your know, shaman or something, that was a big deal, right? To trust somebody else. And I would practice, and I would try the things they told me to do. Obviously, because again, I, I mean, I think those are part of my toolbox still, still to today. I mean, I think they helped build the foundation of my philosophy on life, but. When I was in that studio apartment, I said, I, I mean, literally, I was like, I got to figure this out because I've tried everything, right? I, I've tried everything, everything I tried, tried it. And I would read books that would tell you to love yourself. And I'd be like, love yourself, love yourself. Like, how do you love yourself if you don't know how to love yourself? Like, if one more person said to me, love yourself, I'm like, screw you. You do not know how to love yourself if you don't know how to love yourself. So don't tell me to love myself, right? So I doing that. Yeah. Listening to the divine just going, I was, I think I was so desperate, right? I was desperate. I was so desperate that I was like, I'll try anything. And so I, I was like, what are you going to do, Rhonda? Go back to kindergarten get a calendar gold stars. Okay. Got it. And that actually became that gold stars and those count that calendar actually became a foundational exercise that I've obviously mutated over the years in a very more succinct way. That was the beginning of what I call fearless living now. I mean, obviously I didn't do it for many years, but that was really the start. And Because what I'm known for and, and, you know, why I was on TV for 600 episodes and why I did radio and all those things is because I started realizing that my gift is to create visceral exercises that change people's life in a dramatic way very quickly. And I did it to myself first. And then I somehow, and I, you know, there's lots of stories about this, but I started trusting myself. I implicitly trusting myself. And so when I would get something moving, I mean, what do you have to
0: lose at this point, right? I mean, right, you try well, to kill yourself. I have nothing. Yourself,
1: to, I, have nothing that to lose. Right. I have nothing to lose. I'm single in a studio apartment in Los Angeles, California. All my friends have dumped me. I'm an alcoholic. Hello, I may be cute, but that's all I got going for me. You know what I mean? I was waitressing, you know. So I, I yeah, I've nothing else to lose. Well, and I think that we often don't
0: get to that place of relying on ourselves because there's so many other options, right? There's so many external fixes and we're sold so many external fixes all the time, all day long. And I I don't know if you know, I have this program called Unmentor. And after 23 years Mm -hmm. in this business, and this has been going on for three years. I'm like, after 20 years in this business, I was like, okay, I do not need to give another solution. I don't need to give another training program, another course. I don't need to tell them anything more about their marketing. I, that nobody, the people that I want to work with will be actually harmed by yet another thing mm-hmm. added and they need to yes. unravel what's not working, stop yes. what doesn't resonate with them and learn to trust themselves. And it's fucking yes. hard.
1: Well, that's, that's where my work comes in, right? Because my whole work is, which was shocking. So all during this time that we're talking about, I never once said, I'm afraid or I'm scared. I mean, I grew up in upper Michigan, upper Minnesota. I'm a hundred percent Finnish. That means we don't feel, that means we have something called Sisu, (laughs) which is grit. So, I mean, it's like, if you would have said to me during this time, what are you afraid of? I would have looked at you like you were a crazy person. Like I'm not afraid of anything, Right. So the fact that during this, you know, after my third suicide attempt and after I started surrendering to listen to the path that was before me, it became very clear. And I can tell you about the magical experience because I think I can share this here. I have a magical experience, which I'll share in just a minute, but that really told me what my path was, right? And why I'm different than other people, I always say, is because I heard the voice and then I did You it. listened. I did it. Right. <laughs> I did it. And, and I didn't, I didn't believe I had a right to do it. I didn't believe uh, that you got the wrong person. I thought, but, um, I eventually surrendered and I did it. And, and I, I guess I feel like I need to tell that story now. So do you tell I, it? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I am at this point, maybe. Cause I got sober when I was, uh, 20, 20. Um, let's see, right after my third suicide attempt, I got, I, I became sober. So I was 27 which was a major, obviously big turning point. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And that is not easy to do. You know, people get sober. I'm like, oh my God, you got sober. That's amazing. Getting sober from anything that is not. Yeah. Sugar. Yeah. Sugar, phone, uh, alcohol, uh, pills. I don't care what it is. You have an addiction and I have an addictive personality based on the way that I'm wired. So I'm now doing, um, I mean, it's just a few years. I've been sober a few years. And I am going to Agape, which is an, the International Center of Truth here in Los Angeles, the Reverend Michael Beckwith. Uh, and I studied with Marianne Williamson for two years, Course of Miracles and stuff. So here I am going to that school, you know, studying and going to that school. And I'm doing PR. I own a little tiny PR company that I started doing PR for a little small uh, business owners, you know, solo entrepreneurs. I would do their PR. And I was with one of my clients who was one of the first coaches in the world. And uh, he would always say to me, you're going to be, you're a better coach than me. And I'd look at him like, no, I'm screwed up. Uh, I cannot coach anyone. Are you like a nutcase? That is not happening. Do you know? I've only been sober this long. I mean, I would literally, he would tell me that all the time. You're going to be a better coach than me. And I would look at him like he was a crazy, (laughs) insane person, right? So I am in his office and we're brainstorming some solutions for his PR. And all of a sudden on the right hand up in the ceiling, the sky opens up, a book comes out in a cloud. It goes goes through every page. Sound effects and everything. Big giant book shuts and goes back into the ceiling and out of the cloud. And I am like, what just happened? I look at Paul, who's my client, because I'm thinking, well, you know, clearly that was for him. He's still talking. He has no idea. I actually turn around because I'm so convinced I wasn't supposed to hear that. And I turn around to see who else is in the room. Nobody else is in the room. Paul's still talking. And I am like, are you, are you joking? Because what happened in that magical moment, that download is every single question I'd ever asked my entire life was downloaded to me. I knew every answer to every question I've ever asked and beyond. It told me that, you know, fear is blah, blah, blah. I mean, it it literally, I mean, I knew everything. Like, it was like, I I was like, how do I know everything? (laughs) And then it said inherent in the message that you've got to go teach this now. And I'm like, "Mm, no. And so I thank God I had an appointment with my minister the next day. And I go to my minister and I go, okay, this thing happened to me. And it told me that I have to go do this. I'd left college with three credits left. You know, I didn't even have my bachelor's. I go, I'm gonna have to go get my three credits and get my bachelor's. Then I'm gonna have to go get a master's and I'm gonna have to get a PhD. And then I'm gonna write a book. So I will do this in like seven to 10 years. I, I mean, I was so convinced of that. And she looked at me and she goes, well, if you got the call, you're ready. Yeah, and I was like, I don't think you're listening to me. I have to get my bachelor's. I have to get my master's. I have to get my PhD. I have to write a book. And then, and she goes, Rhonda, you got the call. You're ready. And I am thinking to myself, Lisa, do you understand that I've been sober, like just a few years? And do you understand? I tried to kill myself three times, have three DUIs, wasn't a psych ward. I mean, do you under- nobody is going to listen to me. Like I am not the role model anybody wants to follow, Right. And she just literally kept saying, you got the message, you got the call, you're ready. And it took me six months to surrender to that call. Like it took me six months of wrestling with it. Like, I don't think I can, I don't think I can, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. i know what I'm doing. Right. And then finally, like six months later, a friend of mine actually said to me, I was trying to get her to work with my, my client. And she goes, well, Rhonda, why don't you coach me? And I was like, what? But she was, why don't you coach me? And I, I, I literally was like, what are you talking about? She goes, yeah, I'd like you to coach me. Cause I got the call six months ago. I was like, well, I'll guess I'll try, you know? And so I would have a session with her. Run to Paul, who you know was my client, who was you know one of the first five coaches in the world, and I'd be like, "Okay, she said this, I said that, she said this, she, I said, what do I do?" And then he would tell me, and I would go back though. And then <laughs> you I, would,
0: should, I would, you see back then you didn't have the technology to have him in your ear. You could write yeah, like, exactly right or whatever. And so
1: that was about six months. And then once I started like surrendering to a deeper level, I was like, "Oh, I got this. I know exactly what to do because now I trusted the voice implicitly." And, you know, people always say to me, like, how are you so confident in your coaching? I go, because I trust the voice implicitly. Like I don't ever doubt what I'm getting when I'm, whatever I'm hearing, I know is in service to my client, period, end of story. So, and, and I think that takes for most people, that's just, they're just not there yet. They want to be there, but they're not there yet. Or they doubt the voice, you know, they don't know. I get a lot the question, well, what's, how do I know it's a difference between the voice of fear and the voice of freedom? How do I know the difference between the voice of God and the voice of fear? And I go, well, that I can can explain to you very easily. So, so I started doing that. And within, within six months, I had a a full slate of clients. So the first six months I had two clients. So now you're in your early thirties. I'm in my early thirties. Yep. 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 Well, and and I started my business officially when I was 34. So 1990 business. Yep. Starting my coaching business officially at 34. Yeah. Within six months, I had 20 clients. Within a year and a half, I was speaking. Within three years, I was giving workshops. Within four years, I wrote my first book. Within five years, it was published. Within six years, I was on uh, the first television show in the world for Life Coach in London. Wrote my second book, did that for two years, then came back to the States and did the first Life Coach show in the world here. three years, every day, Monday through Friday on NBC and wrote my third book. And then wrote my fourth book. And then I did celebrity fit club as the coach. So for a period of between the age of 40 and 50, I was did 600 episodes of television, wrote four books. And, you know, if I walked to the target, walked in target, everybody recognized me. I couldn't go anywhere without being recognized.
0: Amazing. Amazing. And, and,
1: And I would say that it really was the willingness, the willingness to trust the magical experience to trust the download yeah and then having the humility to hone it to trust myself to trust it to do the work because you know I, I was giving a sermon once and this guy comes up to me he goes ronda 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 but but uh god told me to do this god told me to open this business and it failed and i said you know i go well did god tell you it'd be a success because the god i know never tells you the end end result and he looked at me like what I go, yeah. Too many people think that just because God gave you an idea that it's meant to be a bestseller, it's meant to be, you know, a bit million-dollar business. That's not God's intention at all. God is just telling you the next thing you're meant to do. And did you do everything you could to learn the skills? Because cause our businesses are a spiritual path. You know, that's a freaking loop. right. So it's our spiritual path. So I think a lot of people I call it
0: our spiritual boot camp, personally. That's right. That's right. right. Doesn't matter.
1: Spiritual path, spiritual Puts boot. Puts us through the ringer. It it totally does, but that's. It's meant to have us more aligned with our soul. You know, my motto is live the life your soul intended. And, and so your job, your career, your vocation is meant to show you all the places where you have to grow. And you have to have the courage, the fortitude, get the support, whatever you need in order to make that happen. Absolutely.
0: So you said that you have an addictive personality. So how else did your addictive personality show up in your path?
1: Well, um, I definitely, because I had nightmares every single night, I either had to drink myself asleep or have a boy over. Let's just say that. Okay. Yeah. So let's just say I had to have a boy, you know, I had to have a man with me when I was younger. I could not be alone. You know, I had to, I had to be with somebody, you know, I was that girl that would go to the party or go to the bar. And I, you know, then I would pick the guy I wanted. And then, you know, an hour and a half later, I'm with the guy I wanted, right.
0: And was that uh, just, uh, did that go along with your alcoholism or did that kick in after you were sober?
1: No, that was a, that was totally with alcohol. That was all like, that was before I even started drinking, but really it was when I drank, I literally would go into a bar, pick the guy I wanted. And then, you know, I would be with the guy I wanted. Yeah, It might be for a night. It might be for an hour. It might be for a couple of weeks. Right. You know, so that's what I would do. I mean, I'd be dating three to five guys at a time because again, I couldn't be alone. And, you know, you had to, you had to like love me and make me convinced that you love me. And then I would maybe be with you. Right. So, I was one of those girls that was like you don't love me. You know, you had to convince me that you loved me, right? I mean, oh my god, I think about, I think about, oh my god, on a regular basis I apologize to every man I've ever dated. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I I have ne- I haven't really talked about
0: this ever publicly. But recently I was going through photos, old photos mm-hmm. and you know, taking all the photos out of the freaking photo albums and, yep, yep. and we're like the last generation that has photos in a photo I album, I think. Mm-hmm. But I was going through my whole like youth and into college and there were so many boys. Yeah. And I didn't have sex with all of them, but man did I obsess. I just was <laughs> I was boy crazy and I'm really confronted because my daughter is not. Mm. And she she's just not. I just remember how distracting it was and there was even a boy in my college the the college dorm that I was in was the newest one at the time and it was it had a courtyard in the middle and so it kind of like mm-hmm. you could see like the other part of the it building through the courtyard up. and I remember there was a boy that I liked and I would watch him this is what I would do <laughs> right and of course this is also before I entered 12 steps for using food to mm-hmm. you know to cover my feelings and that was my mm-hmm. where my addiction showed up so I I relate to what you're sharing and and I think just even recently I was like gosh I just crushes were just what fueled, like that was the distraction. Oh, yeah. That was the yeah. thing, you know. Absolutely. I just...
1: Well, let's just say this is what I did. I still have it, by the way, because I have my, I have some journals from when I was in college. I had a journal with boys' names next to it about what I did with them and what I didn't do with them. There'd be different symbols for like, did I make out with them? Oh, okay. Did yeah, I hold. kiss them? Did I have system. sex? Yeah. Did I have sex with them? Yeah. So I had like a little whole symbol thing. So nobody knew if they found my journal, yes. I would, it was but I would have a guy's name a little bit about him. And then, yeah, did I kiss him, have sex with him, make out with him? You know, like what, what did I do with him? Right. Yeah.
0: So yeah. after you were sober,
1: yes, did your
0: addic- how did your addiction morph from there?
1: Well, when I got sober, everything changed because now I wanted a true intimate relationship. Right. Because now I didn't want to do things just because I was lonely or because if I didn't do it, I would have a craving or something. Right. So, but getting sober, I never thought I was an alcoholic, of course, because so many people don't think they're an alcoholic. So just like I did with my 30 day calendar, with my gold stars, I remember thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to prove I'm not an alcoholic. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to prove I'm not one. And so I told myself that I could have a drink a day. And that would prove if I could have one drink a day, that would prove that I wasn't an alcoholic. So during those 30, I told myself 30 days. So during 30 days, I'm, you know, having my one drink a day. And that wasn't a problem. I could have one drink a day. Problem Lisa, which let me know that I was a true addict and alcoholic was that my entire day was spent obsessing about when I was going to have that drink. Because if I had it a happy hour, I couldn't have it at you know, if I had it at lunch, I couldn't have it at happy hour. If I had a happy hour, I couldn't have it for dinner. If I had a dinner, I couldn't have it for afternoon. If I didn't have it for afternoon, I couldn't have it before I went to bed. And so my whole day, literally, I'm not joking. My whole day was spent when, how can I optimize this drink? Like how, what's the best time to have this drink? And after 30 days, I went Rhonda, that's what makes you an alcoholic. And I remember I'm calling my friend who wasn't, you know, was in a 12 step you know, he had said to me, he told me you're an alcoholic. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm going to prove to you. I'm not, you know? And as uh, so I called him, up, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go to 12 step. So he picked me up the next day.
0: The rest is but, history.
1: Yeah. And, and, and it was, it was, the first three months were really hard. I, I remember one time that I remember one time I wanted to drink so bad. My, my, I was a waitress still. And I was, you know, my, my manager was me and my manager didn't get along and she was mean and you know and i went to the bar next door and i poured uh, had him pour a b52 and i called my friend bill who said you know if you want to have a drink you can you just have to call me first and i was like okay and i call it was like i was six weeks sober at this point i called him i go, i've got, I've got a b52 in front of me and i'm gonna drink my drink hat and he goes okay he goes okay but just know that if you have that drink then you know i think her name was sue sue's in charge of your life sue's, sue's deciding your future for you and i was like this Damn it! 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 And I remember I paced back and <laughs> forth in that bar for I don't know how long, just staring at that B fifty two and realizing he was right. If I had that drink, it meant she was in charge of my life. And I said right then and there when I left that bar without drinking, I said I'm never going to have anything ever run my life again. Period and story. For you. Never. So let me ask you
0: about what it was like in that period of time where you were famous and how was that for you? You know, everybody thinks, not everybody, many people think that they want to be famous or they want to be on Oprah. or they, you know, like if I could just fill in the blank, then I will have made it, you know, so tell us about that.
1: Well, I'll say that the first show I was on actually, before I had my own television shows was Oprah. I was on Sally Raphael, if you remember her. Oh, I I do. Yep. And I was on Oprah. And when I was on Oprah, it did help me because I was able to say I was on Oprah. I got a lot of speaking events from that. But then, of course, I was a good speaker, too. But it did help me in the very beginning of my career be- for speaking. And companies brought me in because I was on Oprah, right? So that was very helpful. I've been on Oprah a few times now. And I loved being recognized for this reason. If you recognized me, that means you watched Starting Over or Help Me Rhonda or we Celebrity Fit Club or Life. All the shows I was on. So you were watching something to change your life. So, you know, one of the benefits of being on television as yourself is they're not idolizing you like a movie star. It really isn't about me at all. So when somebody would come up to me at Target or the grocery store, or you know, the shoe store, I remember I was at Christmas with my nephew and he's like, can we just go somewhere without, I go, I'm sorry. I just, that's the way it is. And the first thing what I was at, they go, oh, no, my God. I go, I would always say, so how has starting over changed your life? And they'd always be able to tell me a great story. You could make it about them. Yeah, I Mm -hmm. totally made it about them. And so I heard stories every day for over a decade about how the work I did on starting over and my other shows, because I knew when I was changing the woman's life in front of me, I knew that I was changing because we had 3 million viewers a day. I knew that I was impacting those millions of people. And then in turn, I was impacting, you know if every person impacts a thousand people, I was impacting tens to hundreds of millions of people. So I really felt like I was honored. I was honored to do that. It was a huge honor. But I also know that I was in a unique situation because I didn't have children. I wasn't married. I was divorced by this time. And, you know, the first TV show I got was in London. I was able to pull stakes, move to London. And, you know, people would say to me, oh, Rhonda, I want to do you do what you do. And I'm like, "Okay, I'm just going to tell you right now I work seven days a week, 12 to 15 hours a day. I have to change clothes five times a day. And it's like, you see me coaching for that five minutes on TV. That took me five hours, you know? So, you know, people just look at, oh yeah, I want to do that. It's like, yeah, but production is hard. And I lived in London, like I said, um, for two seasons and I literally worked, I'm not joking, seven days a week. Cause the seventh day we would be traveling to the next location. So it was technically our day off, but it was a travel day, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I mean I did that for months and months and months. And same thing with starting over. Starting over, we shot six days a week. I had one day off a week. And you know, and I would work anywhere from eight hours to 15 hours a day. And so again, I think people don't necessarily recognize what it takes to actually live that lifestyle. My life was literally sleep was my number one priority. Uh, drinking water is my second and food is my third. Like I had to keep myself in perfect shape and, and healthy as possible. Otherwise I couldn't show up the next day, you know? So my whole life, your, your whole focus changes, you know? And I think that people think that, but they don't understand the, the level of dedication and also the level of sacrifice. Is that when the dark night of the soul comes in? Yeah, well, my dark night of the soul came after my third, uh, after my second television show, and um, I was dating a boy, and it's it <laughs> like they for five them years- men at
0: this point, Rhonda. I know, they yes, I know, men. I still call him.
1: <laughs> but um, for five years during uh, Help Me, Rhonda, and Life Doctor, and Starting Over, I didn't date at all. Like it's like I didn't. How do you date? Like that's just impossible. So when Starting Over the third season ended, I met a boy man, and I was like. <laughs> it's like my time to be in love, you know? So I fell in love with him, moved to Vail, Colorado, lived up in the mountains, thought I was like, Oh, this is so awesome. I'm out in the middle of nowhere. Right. And I was literally slowly dying. I started realizing that the reason I was attracted to him was to fulfill the fantasy of being a wife and mother. Cause he had a two-year-old daughter and I was choosing from a place of lack, not from a place of Abundance, right? I wanted to fulfill my death, fulfill that destiny that was dying inside of me because I could never have children. And so when I started recognizing this, I, I did end up leaving him. And when I left him, everything I thought I was and my entire perception of myself, my relationship to God, everything, because a dark night to me is when the rug is pulled out from under you and you have no idea who you are anymore. And I was suicidal every day. And it wasn't like I was I Rhonda Britton was suicidal. The voice came in every day. Because remember, I was suicidal for all those years earlier. And and when I hit the dark night so here it and came back. It, it, yeah, the voice came back and it was more relentless. And every single day for a year, it would say, kill yourself. Kill yourself. Kill yourself. Kill yourself. And I'm like, I'm not gonna kill myself, but thank you so much. Um, and so my mantra became Lisa. I just have to stay alive while I'm dying. I just have to stay alive while I'm dying because I knew the voice that said kill yourself wasn't about killing me, the physical being of Rhonda Britton. I knew it was killing the part of me that no longer served me and that was actually keeping my spirit, you know, locked down. Even though, if you would have said to me, "Oh, Rhonda, you're so spiritually free," I'd be like, "Of course I am. God works through me," you know. But yeah, you think that, but then you hit the dark night and you go, "Oh crap."
0: So you were being asked to start over.
1: I was totally asked to start over. And for three, I I packed up my stuff, put it in storage, and for three years lived in my car and with friends, and traveled six times across the country. And you were not on TV at the time. No, I was on TV
0: starting over. No, it was the third
1: season. And then those during those two to three years, the third year, I started. They contacted me for Celebrity Fit Club. So then I did go back and do a year of Celebrity Fit Club. And this was like getting into the third year and they put me up in a apartment here in Los Angeles. Was that a
0: hard decision to say yes to going back or were, you know, was it something you felt like you
1: needed to do or. No, I, I really, 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 really live my life by being led. And I know I, I already had the feeling, like I knew something was going to happen. I'd already, I'd already actually been in talks with Oprah's uh, production company. They wanted, they actually were buying a television show for me. Anyway, I was approached by like four or five production companies to have my own TV show. Well, every day you were hearing the voice saying, yep. To yourself. Yep. Yep. And I just knew it was going to work out in whatever way, but I just knew I had to work through this. So I went back to trauma therapy. I literally stayed with friends and family. And if you knew me, I would have never done that. Like I don't go to people's home and stay. I don't ask you to come to an event. Like I couldn't be alone. So I, if I went and spoke at some place, I had to have somebody come with me. I go, please. Was it with-
0: hard to receive that level or ask for that level of support and receive that level of support?
1: Uh, I was like I was hard. I mean, people say, you know, what did you get out of that dark night? And I'll say this, I'll say, this is what sums up the dark night for me. If you came to my house before my dark night, knocked on my door, I would have looked at you and said, do we have an appointment? What the hell are you doing here? Right? Like well, I'm busy. Right. I'm sleeping, eating, or I'm drinking eating, water. Right. <laughs> or I'm writing a book or something. Like I'm busy. What do you got? What do you want? Right now, if you knocked on my door, I would be like, "Oh my god, come in! Can I get you some tea? Oh my god, so good to see you!" And my, you know, people that know me say I've, I'm so soft, and so, you know, just I, I I have fundamentally shifted. And you know, it's so funny, Lisa, because my whole goal always has been to see people's innocence, compassion, unconditional love. And it really took the dark night to get me to the next level of that. You know, it's like I had to be punched in the gut, hit over the head, uh, sitting at my sister's house, crying every day, basically, you know, in the fetal position, barely able to get out of bed. I mean, I went to a functional medicine doctor and he said, I don't even know how you're alive. You should be in the hospital. Like you, you, you're, you're so you're all your vitals are down. Like you, you literally, I don't know how you're not in the hospital. And so I just crawled through broken glass for three years. Literally, that's how it felt. And I would go to Colorado. I had all my stuff in Colorado at the time. And I would stop twice a year in Colorado in one of my trips back and forth, change clothes for the next two seasons. And everything that I needed was in my car. And I lived that way for three years. So connection, open heartedness, compassion, innocence, love that is the gift I got out of the dark night.
0: And how do you feel like that particular dark night influenced the next phase of your expression of your work in the world?
1: I do think, you know, the women are starting over and they're starting over house. The women that I worked with and the men I worked with on the TV shows and my clients, I think they all trusted me. I don't think it was a function of trust. And I think they knew I cared about them deeply, but now they know I love them. Like I love them. Like, they can you know, feel you,
0: they feel you in a different yeah. way, like there's because whole, you feel yeah. yourself in a different yeah.
1: way. Yeah. It's like, I, I, I think I love to a greater depth and degree than I ever have. And a level of acceptance, you know, a level of trust and acceptance at a deeper level. And again, if you would have said this to myself, if you would have asked me this before the dark night, I would have said, I already do that. Like I, I would have already believed that I was like, what are you talking about? I'm so giving and loving. You know, I'm, I trust myself completely, which, which is true to a certain extent. Yeah. But, you know, I call it have... take another, taking, another cut. <laughs>
0: taking yeah, yeah. another
1: cut. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, take like, I just, yeah, I mean, it was just going deeper. You think you are, yeah. Who you think you are, Rhonda Britton, is not who you are. And, and I think also the humility, the love of humility, because when I, when I was came back from the dark night and moved back to LA to shoot the Celebrity Fit Club, you know, I felt like a has been. Um, I felt like I had missed the boat. I felt like I was now, my time was over. Did you feel like your
0: mission that you downloaded back in Agape was
1: complete? I don't think I felt that way probably, but I felt like, I felt that, I felt that to a certain extent when I wrote Fearless Living, my first book, I remember very distinctly opening my book, Fearless Living from the publisher, the first copy and being like, I can die now. Like I, I've done my job. Like. Uh, my job here is to help people master fear, understand how fear really works, not from a cliche point of view, but actually understand how it works for individuals. Like how you process fear is the same mechanics, but it's different for you than me. And until I started understanding the wheel of fear and wheel of freedom and you know, getting that download and understanding and then teaching it to people, my life didn't change. So I still think that my job is to help people become fearless and to understand how their fear works. But I think for me, the difference is I'm okay whether I'm famous or not. <laughs> you know, I'm okay whether I have a man or not. I'm okay whether I anybody recognizes me or not. I'm willing to talk about things, I think, more at a deeper level than, you know, like I'm more available and more open and more more free. Um, and and during the dark night, even though it was very frightening because every day I heard that voice, I also had been through enough dark nights to different levels that I knew it was going to be good on the other side. So I just kept saying to me myself, just stay alive while you're dying. And it's going to be so good on the other side. And so that kept me going, even though it was like, took me three years, but it's like, no, it's going to be good. Just keep going. Just keep going.
0: What do you think is, you said how, if you asked me then, was I loving deeply? I would have said that I was, and now I know I'm not, I'm going to ask you a question. I want to share my experience before I ask the question, which is, I thought I loved my body. I thought I had a deep level of self-acceptance. I had done so much fucking work in that area. Mm -hmm. And then a little over a year ago, I realized that I really didn't, that Mm -hmm. it really wasn't unconditional, that I wasn't allowing my body to be exactly as it wanted to be. I was trying to control it and I made a decision to stop doing that. But Mm -hmm. I thought Yeah, I thought no. I I'm East attorney. I'm of course I love myself. I love my curvy body. I'm sexually expressed. Like all of these things. And then I realized it was time for another deep, 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 deep cut. Right. So what do you think? You're next. What do you What do you think? Maybe is your current sort of blind spot where you think you're this, but maybe there's another phase of your evolution. Yeah. I
1: mean, I I'm going through it right now. I mean, I've been going through it the last few years, and I think I just. You know, and again, you you can laugh at me later when I'm like, well, I guess I wasn't. Um, But, you know, I feel like I just crossed the chasm the last like six to eight months. And really what it is, is being famous has been my Achilles heel. Really embracing has been and victim. And, you know, I am used to everybody knowing who I am and people not knowing. who. And I'm fine if you don't know who I am. I'm not like insulted or anything. But again, starting over, going back to my television show. It's like yes. I am starting over. Like, like it's like I am, I, I literally in the last six to eight months, year and a half, I'd say I've reformulated, you know, my work is my work is my work, but I've created things in a different way or maybe a different format and stuff in order to give my life more flow, more peace, my team more grace. So yeah, so I think really where I am right now is I, I I really do feel like the last, I want to say three months to six months, I finally have embraced has been and embraced victim. I've been really working with the word has been and victim for two years. uh, Cause I think that if you cannot say words, you, they own you. So um, I have been working like victim. I'm being a victim right now and being really like, yeah, I kind of, okay. And you're feeling like a has been. Yes, I am. I'm feeling like a husband. And then I go into, well, then maybe my time is over. I've been doing this for 26 years. Maybe maybe it's somebody else's time. Maybe I just need to step aside, you know? And I would ask myself, well, okay, are you done? And I'd I'd be like, nope, I'm not. And God would be like, nope, you're not. And I'd be like, I guess I'm not. But having to then face has been and face victim and face, I didn't have to market for 10 years. I had four best best-selling books and I was on TV every day. Uh, And then the world changed. There was no social media when I was on uh, when I was on TV. There was no social media when I wrote my books. And now there's social media and there's all these things that you have, you know, like, quote unquote, you have to do per se. Right. And all these things that didn't exist. And so it's like coming to terms with, well, what just kind of like what you talked about earlier. It's like, well, what are the things that I want to do and what is it? And I and I have had a chip on my shoulder about like, I really have to do Facebook live. Don't can't anybody just watch my TV shows, you know, like just it's like I want credit for all the work I've done. You know, I, I've been doing this for 26 years. I want credit, you know, but it's like, no, you don't, you, <laughs> don't get, you don't get credit, Rhonda. You don't. That's not how it works. And I think I had to get over that chip on my shoulder and that feeling of has been and embrace, has been an embrace victim. And just be like, well, yeah, but Rhonda, the part of you that doesn't want to do the Facebook Live is fear, sweet girl, and you know that. And you, Rhonda Britton, actually want to do the Facebook Live because you actually love teaching and talking and sharing and helping set free. So can we just access your true freedom? And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll do it, you know? So I've done a lot of brave things the last 18 months and specifically the last, yeah, I'd say 18 months and then more intensely the last six months. I've done a lot of things that I think I've been... (laughs) dragging my heels and not wanting to do. And again, once again, surrendering again, again, the surrendering. Know, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> that darn surrender. Yes. And, and just the, just the level of love and compassion and connection. And just, I just feel like I get to have this amazing opportunity to be me. And I think the greatest gift we can give the world is to be ourselves. So my job is to be more me every day. And your job is to be more you every day, right? So yes, I feel like I am being more me and being, I moved through the darkness. It was gray. It was black. Then it became gray. And then it started getting foggy. And now I'm like, oh, wait, it's, I see the sun behind the clouds. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's why the GFR commandment number three
0: really spoke to you, which is, yes. you know, the commandment is don't worry about being normal, proper, or polite. And I think you most resonated with the confession question, which was where am I not speaking my
1: truth? That is my all. Yeah. So that is what I've been dealing with since my dark night is like, you know, I'm not, when I'm teaching, when I'm coaching, I'm totally speaking my truth, but the whole marketing thing and the whole that stuff, it was like, uh, you know, and you know, it's it's like yeah, Rhonda. But what is your truth? So yes, my whole thing is I believe success is full self expression. That's my definition. Yes. So to me, success is are you fully expressed? Period and the story. If you're not, let's fix that, right? So yes, why? Where am I not speaking my truth? Is absolutely the thing that I still wrestle with, or have conversations with, or or ask myself on a regular basis. I just talked to a new marketing uh, team that's going to be supporting me and she goes, well, what's true for you? And I just went, blah, 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 blah. She's right. Let's do that. I go, that's right. We're doing that. And I think before the lot, you know, like the six last eight months, I wasn't necessarily ready to do it, but now I'm like, I am crystal clear. I am crystal clear what I'm doing next. I am crystal clear. So that clarity, you know, obviously gives confidence, gives power, gives trust, gives self-acceptance. Yeah.
0: Yes, I totally agree. I mean, that was the, the inspiration of the GFR commandments is like the, when we can confess where, and be more vulnerable and just say the thing, just even just to okay. ourselves, okay. Just say, say the, say the thing. thing. Otherwise that whole imposter syndrome thing is real because we are being an imposter. But if you say the thing, then you don't have to worry about being an imposter being found out because you are Putting the true you out there, which I know
1: y'all is easier said than done. We both know that. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. But that's okay. But that's your journey. Yes, that's your journey. Some things are not meant to be shared with everybody all the time. But if you don't share it to yourself, then you're lying to yourself, and then that part of you becomes contorted, and that part of you becomes mutated, and that part of you then impacts yourself negatively. So, you know, it it, it harms you. So, you know, you have to decide. I mean, I have to decide. You have to decide. We have to decide do we want to live in the light? Do we want to do that? Then we must have the courage to go, well, you know, those guys I slept with, (laughs) you know, like like we have to tell somebody. I always say, you don't have to tell one person everything. You just have to tell somebody something and you can spread it around. (laughs) So nobody knows all your secrets, (laughs) right? But you better tell, like any secret you have owns you. That secret owns you. Do you want that to own you? I don't want my sleeping around to own me or my alcoholism to own me or my suicide attempts to own me or my DUIs to own me or my jail time to own me or my psychiatric visit to own me. Like I don't want, or my husband to own me. Right. I don't want that to own me. I don't want to just, I don't want to make decisions from that thing leading my life or the thing that I'm afraid of leading my life. Uh -uh, No, no. So be willing to, yeah, exactly. Speak your truth. Yes.
0: Rhonda Britton, you are obviously walking your talk girlfriend, and I'm so glad that you chose to start over again after starting (laughs) over season three and and find your way back to the next chapter and the next expression, because that's what the GFR wormhole is about. It's like, you know, that is our next credential that pops us out into the next expression of who we're meant to be. And we needed that experience to do that. So thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing the most recent part of your evolution with us, as well as that amazing origin story. um, I know it's going to help a lot of people.
1: Mm, You're welcome. Thank you. And always be fearless. Yes. Oh,
0: Oh my gosh. Was that just a journey or what? I adore Rhonda. It was so good to see her again and to really get time with her. And I hope that you're reflecting on the worst day of your life in a whole new way. And to get more connected with Rhonda, and she just has so much great tools and content and training. Um, we have included her how to get over your fear of rejection training, as well as her two-hour audio program called Getting Your Needs Met. I couldn't decide. She offered both to our audience. I said, can we do both? So you're going to really love her. She's top-notch in what she shares and her insights. And for our GFR squad, she does a really cool exercise called control and no control. And it really illuminated to me how much I allow the things that I have no control over to really create the narrative in my life. So if you do that too, you're going to want to join the GFR squad. So you can come and meet with us each month, talk about the commandment of the month, and hear her bonus training. It's totally eye-opening. And if you haven't grabbed your 12 GFR commandments yet, you're definitely going to want to do that. Each guest points out to me their favorite GFR commandment. Rhonda's was number three. Don't worry about being normal, proper, or polite. She actually speaks about it quite a bit and was super complimentary. I thought it was so sweet on how powerful she thought all of those questions are and if you haven't seen them yet, it's a great way to kick off the year to kind of do a bit of an inventory as to where you might be getting in your own way. It's not a 12 step program, <laughs> it's just one the one, the one that you should be working on in each and each moment in each day. Just pick one and it will move the needle for you, I promise. So grab those at gfr.life forward slash 12c or join the squad at forward slash squad. <laughs> Links in the show notes. All right. Can't wait to see you next time. Subscribe so you don't miss any of these amazing interviews. Bye-bye for now.